Hello, welcome to the geriatric uh, lecture series. I'm Mike Kelly, uh, and I'm going to be talking today about alcoholism and substance abuse in older adults. Uh, currently, I'm the uh, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Iowa. Uh, in a previous uh, clinical career, I uh, was a specialist in psychiatry and uh, uh, spent a few years in the VA system and, uh, and, and developed an interest in substance abuse, uh, and particularly in the older, older patient. And so um, I'm happy to be able to talk about this, uh, this topic for you today. Um, our brief disclosure statement, uh, I have no financial interests and have nothing to declare. Uh, basically what we're going to talk about today is um, substance abuse in the elderly and alcoholism, and so I'm going to try to define the problem. Then I'm uh, going to sh show you a few tools for screening for alcoholism and substance abuse, an important uh, uh, process in the elderly who often go uh, misidentified. I'm going to talk briefly about assessment and diagnosis, uh, even more briefly actually about treatment. Uh, treatment does not vary uh, a great deal between the elderly and, and younger patients. And then finally I'll draw some conclusions and we'll wrap it up. So uh, substance abuse and alcoholism in the elderly has been described as an in, invisible epidemic. Um, and it is a rapidly growing problem. Um, it is underestimated because uh, as many as 20% of those over 60, 65 can be labeled as having uh, substance abuse or alcohol problems. It's underidentified because physicians aren't looking for it, they're rushed, there's physical problems that get in the way. It's underdiagnosed. Uh, as many as one-third of all the patients who are admitted to hospital that actually have a diagnosable substance abuse problem are identified, so only one-third, so it's very underdiagnosed. And then finally, it's undertreated. I did say that treatment's effective, but the problem is, is that we're not getting our elderly patients into the, into the system. Uh, we don't have enough pr treatment programs that are uh, designed specifically for the elder population, and so there are, there are uh, cases of undertreatment that, that are problematic. So, alcohol. I'm going to talk about alcohol first, then we'll talk about substance abuse in a little bit. Um, alcohol is problematic in the elderly because there are substantial differences between how older adults handle alcohol and younger adults do. And most of this is physiologic. Um, and uh, easy part of this to explain is that there's a decrease in total body water. What happens as we age? Uh, basically, the composition of our body changes and we become more, uh, we have a higher concentration of water and of of fat and less of water. And so uh, alcohol is a water-soluble compound. And so uh, you probably have certainly understand that the higher the concentration of alcohol, the more intoxicated a person becomes. And so what happens is, is that there's less total body water in an elderly person, the same amount of alcohol that they may have taken when they were younger, in that, that diminished amount of fluid makes for a higher concentration of alcohol. So uh, typically in a, an elderly patient, they need less alcohol to become intoxicated. So this leads to increased sensitivity and decreased tolerance. So tolerance is a problem um, that develops in a patient that has, uh, has uh, long-standing use of these compounds. And so uh, it, it, it can happen, but it doesn't happen as much in the elderly because 
of this, these changes in their physiology. Uh, finally, there is decreased metabolism of alcohol in the, in the elderly patient, uh, and that's because there's uh, a, uh, an enzyme in the, in the stomach called alcohol dehydrogenase, and it's in the stomach, and so what happens is it destroys some of the alcohol when it's still in the stomach before it gets absorbed into the bloodstream, and there's less of this enzyme in the elderly patient, and hence more is absorbed. So uh, that can also lead to increases in concentration of alcohol in the elderly. The size of the problem, uh, depending on how you read, who you read and how, you def how they define things, uh, between 3 and 25% of elderly individuals are considered as heavy users in community samples. Those are community samples. Um, and again, a range that wide, it's hard to say where we hang our hat, but it's probably something, you know, 10 to 15% of individuals. 2.2 to 9.6% are diagnosed with, with, can be frankly diagnosed with alcohol abuse. So um, that, that, that figure still has a wide range, but it's narrowing. And then 15% um, of men and 12% of women drink in excess of the daily recommended limit. Now, do we know what the daily recommended limit for the elderly is? I'm asking that as a question. The answer? One drink per day is considered the daily recommended limit for anybody over 65. And two drinks are allowed on celebration days, like birthdays and holidays. I have several uh, illustrations to, to show you uh, the nature of the problem of alcohol uh, use in the elderly. Now, this is fairly recent data, published in 2009. And you can see that. Um, it covers a variety of age ranges from the very young, 12 to 13, and those over 65. And uh, not surprisingly, drinking peaks in the tw early 20s and sort of plateaus there, and then sort of starts to decline as, as, as the population ages. Now, you can see that it's still a significant uh, portion of the population, 65 and over, do drink. So the light blue is current use. So uh, up to 40% or more of the population 65 and older do, do currently drink. Uh, of those, uh, looks like about 8% uh, could be considered to binge. Uh, and uh, then finally, heavy alcohol use, probably 2 to 3% in, in this data. And, it, and that's similar to what I had said earlier, that abuse was in the range of 2 to 8%. So these are very recent data and uh, do suggest that um, the elderly, it may be slightly less problem, but uh, uh, still a very significant part of the population is affected. One reason why the use of alcohol in elderly patients is so important is because there are so many drug interactions that occur with alcohol. And there are so many drug interactions primarily because individuals over 65 take a lot of medications. They consume one-third of all prescription drugs. They represent about, what, 15% of the population, and yet they consume 33% of all prescription drugs. The average person over 65 takes four and a half prescription drugs at a time, and 30% take many more. They also consume a lot of over-the-counter drugs. They do a lot of self-care. So with an average of two over-the-counter drugs. So our elderly population take a lot of medications. Alcohol interacts with a variety of these. And so that's why it's important that we identify patient individuals that are using alcohol, particularly 
those with complex medical problems that may be on a lot of drugs. I've got a few examples of the drug interactions I'm talking about here. Um, there is uh, acetaminophen, a very common pain reliever. Uh, it is hepatotoxic when it is combined with alcohol. The two are both hepatotoxic, and the two together are worse than either one alone. Uh, anticoagulants like warfarin, Coumadin, uh, you can see an increased or a decreased effect uh, from the warfarin. Uh, I used to do a lot of warfarin blood monitoring, and, and if a patient's uh, INR was uh, out of whack, I'd almost, first thing out of my mouth would be, well, did you have a lot to drink, or did you do anything different about your drinking patterns? Very, pro very common, very problematic for the elderly patient. Aspirin. We have a lot of our elderly patients on aspirin, and patients that take aspirin and drink alcohol uh, do have an increased risk of GI hemorrhage. Benzodiazepines like Valium, Xanax, Lunesta, I mean, these are these drugs like Lunesta, the, the new uh, sleeping compounds, uh, uh, hypnotics, we used to call them. Uh, they, they all have sort of the same problem. They are central nervous system depressants and alcohol is too, so you get a combination. So you can see I went down through A through, a through B and I, I was able to find four drugs that are very common uh, to cause prescription uh, issues and so um, uh, alcohol prescription drug interactions and that's not even looking at the over-the-counter drugs. So it's a real issue that I think uh, we, we don't want to lose sight of because it can uh, it is an important thing we need to address. So that's a brief overview of the problem about alcohol. Now, what I want to move to now are illicit drugs and prescription medications. Um, this is becoming a very real problem and it's getting bigger all the time and we can blame it on the boomers. They are a group that uh, have uh, been introduced to the use of illicit drugs uh, early in their life and uh, they bring some of these bad habits along with them into, into their aging. Um, illicit drugs, heroin, marijuana, cocaine. In the elderly patient, in the elderly population right now, say your typical 75-year-old individual, um, heroin, marijuana, cocaine, there is some use but, but not a great deal. Uh, where we see this use being uh, more common is in the age group 50 to 60, so that uh, there is this feeling that as we move forward, we're going to see a lot more people that are going to have trouble with, with, certainly with illicit drugs. Now, the problem of prescription medication abuse is, is really uh, uh, come, come to the fore here very recently. Uh, benzodiazepines are commonly uh, uh, misused. The opiate uh, narcotics are uh, probably the thing we hear the most about, Oxycontin, drugs like that. Those are, are in, prescribed in, in very increasing uh, numbers to uh, the elderly patients. Um, the vast, vast majority of our elderly patients uh, use these drugs as prescribed, uh, probably underutilize them if anything, but there is a, a small and significant number who do do take these drugs in excess and what we might call misuse, abuse, abuse these, pop, these, these medications. So here's just some, some illustrations or I'm talking about how the baby boom generation might have, have some effect. So this is in patients aged 50 to 59. So this is uh, the group that are going to be coming into our practices as elderly patients very soon. So um, as you can see, uh, 
non-medical use of prescription drugs is down here at the bottom. Um, again, I almost a doubling in five years of 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 the of the incidence of, of non-prescription use. Um, marijuana is the next one, 3.1 to 5.7. Again, almost a doubling. And then finally, any illicit drug use, and this would include benzodiazepines, opiates, um, and 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 the combinations, polydrug abuse is very common. And so many of these patients may take alcohol, they may take you know, benzodiazepine, alcohol, smoke cocaine, uh, smoke marijuana, and uh, and uh, maybe take some heroin all at once. So uh, about 10% as of 2007 of the population, 50 to 59, were um, using these drugs. Now that's not to say they were abusing them, uh, but they were using illicit drugs or, or illicit drugs or prescription medications inappropriately. Here's marijuana, and this is by birth cohort. So here we at the top, we have the youngest of the birth cohorts, and then at the bottom, we have the bottom of the, of the oldest of the birth cohorts. So you can see that in 2007, the, this population, by definition, is now over 65. Not very many, about 2%. But then as we move forward and look at somebody that's 15 years younger, uh, the incidence is more like 8 to 10%. So again, I think we're talking about uh, a group of patients that's coming towards us that are, are going to be much more likely to, to need treatment and evaluation. Um, here's non-medical use of prescription drugs. We were just talking about marijuana. Here's non-medical non use of prescription drugs. Same same uh, appearance to this graph and you can see that uh, in fact you might think or it looks certainly suggestive that this might even be coming a more of a problem in, in the older patients so again I mean how many times do I have to tell you that this looks like it's going to be a bigger problem than it is right now okay here we go uh, past month illicit drug use among persons age 12 or older by age again it's it's uh, fun to see these and um, peak early 20s starts to slow down, sort of tapers and plateaus in the 30 to 50, and then it starts to drop off. Now, this is the group of, of individuals who did not come of age when drug taking was, let's say, popular. And so this number is much lower than these others, and I think we're going to see this number start to rise as we move forward. Here's emergency department visits. And depends on the year. Uh, opioid or agonists, which are opioid drugs or analgesics, and then benzodiazepines. And so you can see these lines are 2004, these lines are 2008. So these people are definitely, uh, as in four years' time, you can see how these, these uh, curves have differed, and it's certainly going to be a bigger problem in the future. All right, that's all I have to say about that. Now, I said, is this an unrecognized epidemic before? And I'll repeat that. Um, probably can consider to be an un unrecognized epidemic. Uh, pro providers do overlook substance abuse in the elderly. Uh, they mistake it for other things. Dementia, which is very common. Depression, again, are very common things. Other common ailments of the elderly. Obviously, lots of symptoms and signs of some of the common chronic diseases of the elderly can, can be confused with, with substance abuse. Rushed office visits, in fact, the elderly 
you know, have less time with a physician than younger patients. Uh, older adults are more likely to conceal the abuse because of the social stigma that they attach to it. Uh, they also are, it's a shame thing for them. Um, they're less likely to seek help for all the same reasons. And uh, finally, there's some ageism. Um, basically, we apply different quality of life standards to older adults. So we're, we say, well, what difference does it make? He's not going to be around here very long anyway. Things like grandma's cocktails are the only thing that makes her, makes her happy. So we have pessimism about the likelihood of treatment success. So the ageism that, that, that is faced in this, in this aspect of elderly care, I think, is very real and, and something we need to overcome. So even if um, there's some suspicion, professionals may not catch it. Um, for, to begin with, uh, there is a low index of suspicion, uh, particularly in, in, in women, uh, patients that are educated, uh, those with higher socioeconomic uh, status are much less uh, to be suspected of, of using drugs, and so they may fly under the radar. I sort of alluded earlier to non-specific symptoms of substance abuse that can be confused with serious physical problems, um, lack of sleep, um, poor appetite, uh, loss of weight, all those uh, can certainly be uh, attributed to chronic conditions oftentimes. Again, I said earlier the time spent with the patient decreases with age. You'd think it would go up, but in fact it does not. Um, substance abuse problems compete with other problems, you know, mother's mother probably is drinking too much, but gee, her, you know, atrial fibrillation and her bad hip and her bad knee, uh, we, you know, that's what she complains about. We, we want you to take a look at that, doc. And so these other things don't get, don't get uh, looked into properly. And then finally, um, there's some, some belief in the professional world that elders do not benefit as much from treatment, and that's just not the case. It is difficult. Another reason why it is difficult to diagnose um, substance abuse and alcoholism in the elderly is because the diagnostic criteria that are described for substance abuse tend to uh, exclude the elderly in, in some interesting ways. I'm going to go through this. This is the diagnostic criteria for substance abuse in the elderly, or excuse me, for substance abuse, period. So it's a maladaptive pattern of substance use. It leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. And it needs to be manifested by one or more of the following. So um, recurrent substance use resulting in a failure to fulfill a major role obligation. Now, elderly patients uh, don't have that, those obligations. They, they don't have to go to work. They're, they're not taking care of somebody. And so it's easy for that to be missed. Um, recurrent substance use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Again, they're by themselves. They're not engaged in in uh, dangerous employment, uh, they may have somebody else doing their yard, uh, they don't get up on ladders anymore, things like that. They, um, another diagnostic criteria is recurrent substance-related legal problems. They don't drive as much, they don't get in fights, they don't uh, bring attention by the law, they don't abuse their spouse. Uh, continued substance use despite having persistent or recurrent social interpersonal problems caused by or exacerbated by the effects of the substance. So this is where I think we need to focus on because I think this is where we see the issues, persistent recurrent social problems, and we're going to talk about that. How to identify this, this uh, problem in, in just a couple minutes. So dependence. 
is another criteria for, for substance use and abuse and misuse. And again, this is uh, slightly uh, works against the elderly being diagnosed appropriately. So this is a mal maladaptive pattern of substance use leading to impairment or distress, and it, it needs to be manifested by three or more of the following. So tolerance. I already said that um, the need for markedly increased amounts of alcohol diminishes over time. So if we're looking at, at someone and saying, oh, he isn't dependent because he hasn't increased his consumption. He's always had just three drinks a day, but three drinks a day may in fact be much, much more consumption than it was 10 years ago. Uh, there is also a markedly diminished effect with the same amount. That's how tolerance is defined. And so um, this can occur, excuse me, it's unlikely to occur in the elderly for just what I said. And secondly, uh, a long-standing alcoholic may have liver failure that would, um, would, would again, get, would not be metabolizing the alcohol or substances, and so they would build up, and so you don't see tolerance develop as much. Withdrawal, again, I already mentioned that withdrawal is not readily um, identified in the elderly. Uh, and, and, and certainly when we were in practice in the hospital, we'd frequently get surprised by an elderly patient that came in, did not dis divulge a, a heavy alcohol use, and then a day or two post-admission would go into uh, alcohol withdrawal, and, and, and it'd be pretty alarming. So um, the fact that, that an a, 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 a elderly patient does not exhibit tolerance does not mean they do not have a drinking problem. And uh, the comorbid conditions and aging uh, do lower the threshold for dependence. So this is not a, a terrifically accurate way to help us define substance abuse in the elderly either. These are some other uh, comments about um, uh, dependence. Uh, taking the substance in larger amounts, they may not do that. Persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control substance abuse. Um, they may make none of those attempts. Uh, spending a deal of time, again, not something you're going to observe because they've got a lot of free time, they're, they're independent, and uh, so there's a lot of reasons why we have a little difficulty identifying this problem in the elderly. So, now I, talked, I described the problem that there are a lot of people that are, that are at risk, uh, why they're at risk, what it is that makes it difficult to identify them. So now I want to talk and move over to how do we identify, how, how do we best identify these individuals? And to start with, the best way is with screening. Now, screening for alcohol and prescription drug abuse, the question is, well, who should be screened? Well, anybody that's 60 years of older and it should be done every year. Uh, and it should also include elderly that have symptoms that be, can, can be consistent with alcohol and substance abuse. And, and I have a slide ahead of us that's going to show us some of those. And any elderly patient that's undergoing life changes or transitions. So if someone's getting a divorce or has lost their job, uh, either through retirement or being laid off, those are the kinds of people we need to start screening and keep an eye on them. So who should we have doing this screening? Well, everybody. Uh, primary care providers are at the top of the list. But anybody that comes into the home, Pharmacists are, are a good one that may be able to help in this area, friends and family, even staff at the senior center, because some of these screens are very simple to, to administer. Um, now, even 
so I just said they're easy to administer. They, they must be done properly. So you have to do it in a sensitive manner because people are going to deny that they have a problem. Uh, people want to be left alone. So any questions you ask may be viewed as intrusive, threatening, offensive. And then, obviously, because there's so much stigma associated with the diagnosis, people are going to be secretive about this. Um, basically, what you want to do is say, hey, we're looking out for your best inference. We want to give you some information about the use of alcohol, but we do want to maintain their autonomy, and we want to support them if, if indeed we do find something going on. One thing I think is useful uh, is to, to basically have some real sense about who's at risk. Um, and I think a lot of this probably already know, but I'm going to repeat them. Gender. Males are at much greater risk. That's no big surprise. Um, they're much more likely to have a, an alcohol abuse problem, and they're also more likely to have problems when they were younger. And anybody that has a problem younger is, is, is more likely to have a problem when they're older. A loss of a spouse. Uh, clear evidence that uh, those that are divorced or separated and men who are widowed are at much greater risk of alcohol abuse. Other losses like uh, families and friends, pets, uh, loss of income and social support upon retirement, uh, loss of mobility, impaired capabilities uh, that you know, like sight and, and hearing that may lead to isolation. Again, substance abuse earlier in life. Like I said, if you you're much more likely to abuse later in life if you've done it earlier. Comorbid psychiatric conditions. There is a very strong relationship between depression and substance abuse. A family history of um, alcohol problems, uh, concomitant substance abuse uh, is is uh, substance use. Excuse me, is is a, uh, a risk factor for alcohol abuse and vice versa. And finally, people that smoke uh, tend to be more uh, prone to alcohol abuse. Okay. Um, Still talking about screening, and this is the idea that these are some typical signs that you might look for in a patient that you that in a patient. And if you see these signs, then you would have some suspicion that maybe these are caused by the use of alcohol, and I should take a look and see what's going on. So I need to administer the screening. Uh, I mentioned alcohol, but this these many of these. Uh, actions would would also suggest the misuse of prescription drugs so it's just a list and and it's probably a little wordy but I think many of these are um, are pretty self-evident so excessively worrying about whether the drug is really working in a prescription and I'm, I'm sure you've all encountered individuals like that oh I'm not sure my my uh, sleeping pills helping uh, displaying detailed knowledge about a specific psychoactive drug uh, attaching great significance to its efficacy. I used to see this all the time in the VA system. Well, this is the only drug that works, Doc, and I, I don't uh, I don't want to try anything else. Everything else has been tried, nothing works. Worrying about having enough pills, uh, continuing to use and request refills even after what was being treated is basically improved. So if somebody has a broken, broken bone and they're still looking for painkillers, uh, you know, several months out, you, you you should certainly suspect something. Uh, complaining about the doctors who won't write their prescriptions, increasing their own doses because the drugs aren't helping anymore, withdrawing from their family, friends, and neighbors. Now, this is more general. These are the kinds of things you're going to see uh, that family members can help you with, uh, home health care aides, um, 
withdrawing from normal and lifelong social practices if they start smoking, uh, minor traffic accidents because alcohol uh, and drugs combined with, you know, just the, the slowing of reflexes in, in, with age uh, lead to more traffic accidents. Sleeping during the day, bruises, burns, fractures, um, getting loaded before they go out on a social event, uh, if their grooming deteriorates, if they get kicked out of their housing, any empty liquor, wine, beers, bottles, uh, all important uh, warning signs that we need to worry about. Here's some physical symptoms, screening triggers, and I know this is, this is really fine print, but sleep, uh, cognitive impairment, obviously seizures. If somebody has a seizure, you'd expect, you might suspect withdrawal, uh, liver function abnormalities, uh, chronic pain, incontinence, urinary retention. Uh, marijuana is very anticholinergic and can cause urinary retention. Benzodiazepines are anticholinergic and cause urinary retention. This is, this is a pretty important one to remember. Uh, again, poor hygiene, uh, blurred vision, dry mouth, there's your anticholinergic activity again, uh, changes in eating habits, slurred speech, things like that. So all of these are triggers for screening. Now we're going to talk about screening tools. I'm sure everybody that's listening to this uh, presentation has heard of the CAGE questionnaire. And I put this in here because it is appropriate for use by non-medical caregivers, aides, and volunteers. So if you've got someone that's going to win a home, even a Meals on Wheels kind of person could ask some of these questions. Um, and it's the cage. Have you ever felt need to cut down? Have you ever been annoyed? Have you ever felt guilty? Have you ever been, have you, do you need an eye opener? Uh, and so for any time they answer yes uh, with one or more, then uh, there may be alcohol problems and they should be fully, fully screened and assessed. This is a real eye chart, and it's for the Michigan Alcohol Screening Test geriatric version. Now, you can Google this, and it'll give you this in something you can read. There's this, and it's called the MassG. This is an interesting dot, interesting screening tool because it can it is self-administered, so you can just hand this to the patient while they're being. Uh, introduced to the office and let them fill it out themselves. Now there's, this is the mass G. I'm going to show you this and it's got 24 questions. If I have a red asterisk nest by one of the questions, it's part of the mast, the short mass G. So the first, this, this document has 24 questions. This has 10. Both are equally effective. So I would probably use the short version. And you can see the questions that are asked when talking with others. Do you ever underestimate how much you've drunk? Uh, does alcohol sometimes make it hard for you to remember? Uh, on and on, these questions are very common and, and certainly ones I'm sure you've seen before. Uh, do you hide your alcohol bottles from family members? Going on, uh, do you end the evening with a nightcap? Do you usually take a drink to relax or calm your nerves? Uh, take your mind off your problems. When you feel lonely, does a drink help? So what you do is you administer this, uh, basically scoring five or more yes responses uh, to the mass G uh, indicate an alcohol problem. Two or more on the short mass G would indicate an alcohol problem. So, and again, these are screening tests. They are just helpful to identify patients. You identify the patients, you refer for assessment and diagnosis. So uh, assessment tests can be used in a variety of 
of circumstances and I, and 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 we need to start using these more in our older people older population here's we just looked at the mast this is the DAST or the drug abuse screening test uh, very similar uh, principle this is looking for screening test uh, for drugs of abuse and there are the questions um, have you used drugs other than those required for medical reasons do you abuse more than one drug at a time um, have you had blackouts, flashbacks, and you can see they're pretty, pretty specific to, to substance abuse rather than alcoholism. Excuse me. This this document is available at this website. The drug abuse screening test uh, is scored in this way. So uh, one to two positive answers uh, would suggest that there may be a low level of, of drug abuse going on, and you need to uh, do better screening. Uh, three to five. Four to six to eight. It's, as the number goes up, obviously the risk of of having a problem with substance abuse increases, and so that's how this drug this this screening test is used. This is also a self administered uh, a self administered test. Very recently, in fact, in the last uh, few months, a uh, there was a publication that demonstrated that just a single question screening test was uh, actually very sensitive and specific for identifying drug use. Um, the and you can see this the single question how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medication for non-medical reasons and if they say yeah I did that once that's considered positive if they say obviously if they do it more it's, it's it's even more positive and again this looks to work as well as our DAST 10 that we just looked at and you can see hundred percent sensitivity so it's very good at finding the positives and 73% specificity, so it's pretty accurate finding out those people that don't take the don't take substances as well. So it's uh, we may be able to just go ahead and ask that simple question and single simple question and and, and consider that an adequate screen. So how do we communicate when we find something? So if we give the screening test and we get a positive result, it's important that we do something with it. And the first thing to do is is to let the individual know that substance abuse, alcoholism is very detrimental to adults' health, older adults' health, they need to do something about it. Uh, you need to make sure that they know that there's treatment available and that it works. Uh, it says, I've got down here, present the options for addressing the problem. Maybe you know someone you want to refer this person to for, send them to their primary care provider to begin with for assessment and diagnosis. But if, if they don't have a, a, a provider, then go ahead and give them some of these resources. Uh, that first number is a is a telephone number that puts you in touch with the government's um, identifying uh, group. So you that you call them, they say where are you living, and then they'll find a provider in your area. Uh, the other websites, one is for the federal government, the other is for the Iowa Department of Public Health, and both of those will lead you to practitioners that are are skilled at assessing and diagnosing and treating uh, patients with substance abuse. You finally have to make sure that wherever we refer them, that the patient can get to them and that it's affordable and they can receive the benefit. If you suspect that they need immediate admission, you certainly need to go ahead and, and, and get that arranged. And uh, I have down there in big bold letters capitalized that you may need repeated contacts to make this your case with these individuals. Uh, there is certainly a lot of denial. and. Um, and so screening is important, uh, and the results of a positive test you may have to keep after the patient to get them into treatment. A negative result, all you have to do is say, you're doing terrific, 
keep up the good work and uh, we'll do it again in a year. So if you get a positive screen or if there's, a, if there's some reason that we suspect um, substance abuse, then we need to confirm by an assessment. Uh, it should include the, the, the provider's clinical judgment, but it can also be validated with, with uh, designed assessment instruments, including the structured clinical interview and the diagnostic interview schedule. Both of these are widely used and uh, all good di diagnosticians will use them. Uh, in this assessment, you, all wanna, you also want to check out their functional abilities. Are they going to be able to participate in a treatment program? Are they all going get to get to uh, a meeting and on and on? Any comorbid disorders? Are there physical and psychiatric comorbidities that need to be addressed uh, before we can successfully uh, improve treatment? So treatment. Older adults are more compliant and have outcomes that are at least as good as younger patients. So um, that's the good news. So I mean, it's it's important that we let older adults know this and that we that we uh, move them into treatment if it's appropriate. Uh, like any individual patient group, the least intensive treatment options are tried first, and the and the, the least intensive is the brief intervention. Uh, Ten to thirty percent of problem drinkers reduced to moderate levels uh, following a brief intervention. So this is, this is certainly something that can be done quickly uh, by a variety of providers and um, certainly something that we start off with. If the brief intervention isn't helpful, then we go to a full intervention, motivational counseling. And so um, obviously the same sort of treatment approach that we'd use in a younger group. Now I've got down here that this Treatment is more likely to be effective in late onset drinkers, and, and this is something I didn't describe earlier. There's, there's a couple of ways of looking at elderly, elderly substance users, those that have been using substances all their lives and those that have been, been um, that just took them up. So someone who all of a sudden starts to drink and becomes a problem drinker is a lot different cat than um, one that's been drinking all their lives. And it turns out that late onset drinkers are easy to treat Prescription drug abusers appear to be easier to treat as well, and anybody that's got strong social support is easier to treat than, than someone who does not. So um, I, I, would, I would add when I was talking about treatment that older adults do, do pose unique problems because they're, you know, they do have a big sense of shame, um, and so we need to be very non-confrontational and supportive when we, when we address them. I'm just going to talk just a couple of minutes about brief intervention components. Um, again, this is, can be done in as little as 20 minutes, uh, a brief intervention, just basically sit down and have a chat with the patient about their issues. Uh, so basically you'll have these conversations where you identify future goals for their health. Maybe they, they have uh, relationships, they want to, you know, kick this so that they can make sure that they, they are able to see their granddaughter get married, whatever. Uh, customized feedback on the screening question. So if we use something like the, the MAST and they said, oh, I have to have a drink before I go and engage in a social function. Uh, those are the kinds of things we can say, you know, that's not normal. You need to, to, to find other ways to uh, prepare yourselves to go to these, these events. Discussions of types of older drinkers. Compare the patient behaviors to the normals. Obviously, a large number of people that age do drink. I said 40% earlier, but only about 10 even binge, 10% binge, only 1 or 2% are truly problem drinkers. So basically, uh, 
put them in, in, in some, some range so they have some sense of where they're at, divine a standard drink so they know that that's uh, one beer, one glass of wine, or one uh, standard shot of, of uh, 80, 80 proof alcohol. Point out the pros and cons of drinking. Um, we'll probably avoid the pros and talk mostly about the cons. Um, you do ask them, well, what role does drinking serve in your life? And if they say, well, it, you know, a treatment for loneliness and things, it certainly helps uh, focus your, your intervention. Explore coping with loss, loneliness, and pain. Describe the consequences of drinking, making it clear to them this is why you have this physical problem or psychological issue. Uh, what are the good reasons for cutting down? Well, you can stay in your own home, your health will maintain, you won't have trouble with your mental mental functions, strategies for reducing and stopping, speaking of social opportunities, hobbies, volunteering. And then finally, uh, put together an agreement and then um, solutions for coping with rocky situations like uh, isolation, boredom, you know, excess temptation, things like that. So that's a brief intervention. can be done very quickly, maybe a couple times with a brief intervention. Uh, and sometimes you get even dramatic results with brief intervention. If admission to a treatment program is necessary, then you basically got to make the decision, are you going to treat them as an inpatient or an outpatient? Uh, inpatient obviously has uh, detoxification available. You can get inpatient rehabilitation, residential rehabilitation. On the outpatient side, again, detoxification can be uh, performed as an outpatient. And then finally, um, uh, as an outpatient, we can have some case management come in and help a great deal with these patients. Again, I'm going to get back to the same old song I've been singing all day, um, that we're facing this increasing epidemic. And so you can see the admissions of aging adults 50 or older uh, have gone up a great deal uh, fairly recently. Um, these are the number of admissions adults 50 or older. From 2001 to 2005, the number of admissions went from 143,000 to 184,000. So a very large number of an in, increase in, in admissions. And you can see, uh, again, the older patients, the, the younger they get, the more likely they are to be coming under treatment. So again, it's this, um, this group that's coming along. And I meant to get into the information packet, but didn't, uh, a, a, a document that was released in June from um, the government, uh, the substance abuse group, and they further showed that uh, a new nationwide study shows a dramatic rise in the proportion of older adults admitted for substance abuse treatment uh, from 1992 to 2008. They saw a, an increase in heroin treatment from 7.2 to 16 percent, cocaine from 2.9 to 11.4 percent, prescription drug use from 0.7 to 3.5 percent, and marijuana use from 0.6 to 2.9. Now those are treatments, and that was with illicit drugs and prescription drug abuse. So alcoholism will always be with us, always be a problem for us, but as we move forward, uh, illicit drugs, substances of abuse are going to uh, also uh, become a much more problem uh, all around. Here's another way to look at the admissions. Uh, this is also not quite as recent a data, but it's 2005, um, and you can see the change in the type of patient that's going to be treated. So here's the 50 to 54, and that was five years ago, so now these are 55 to 60. So here's our, 
are uh, 65 and above, uh, you can see that alcohol remains a huge problem, but it will become less and less of an issue. And as I just described, um, here's the opiates. Cocaine use is much more problematic. Marijuana, not a, not a drug that gets a lot of treatment, although it is increasing at some level. The stimulants uh, are almost unheard of in their use, and they're very old, but uh, certainly are an issue for the younger people. And then other um, includes substances like um, inhalants, um, benzodiazepines, uh, drugs of that type. So there are important aspects uh, of older adult treatment. They do best with age-specific groups, and there are not enough of these treatment programs available that are age-specific, and um, this is one way, one problem that we definitely need to address that would help our aging population a great deal. Uh, because of the issues of the elderly patient, we do need to focus on coping with depression, loneliness, and loss, because they are often features of uh, the abuse of substances and alcohol. Uh, we really need to focus on rebuilding any social support that they may that they may have lost. Uh, the pace and the content need to be appropriate for older persons. Um, obviously, uh, probably a little slower change in content. Uh, we need staff that are experienced in working with older adults. And finally, we need to have medical services because many of these people, as I showed in that slide way back when, are on a lot of different drugs, have a lot of chronic diseases. We need people that have, have medical expertise as well as substance abuse expertise, and, and many treatment centers just are not are not uh, uh, are not staffed at that at that level at this point. Um, so older adult treatment, certainly inpatient, outpatient, um, we've got a ways to go. Uh, we know where the problems lie, and so we need to um, hopefully start moving some resources in that direction. There are barriers to treatment in the elderly. Uh, transportation can be a big one. Uh, how do we get to? The, how do I get to the AA meeting? Uh, meetings in the evening can be problematic if a patient has problems seeing or or uh, buses aren't running. They have a shrinking social support system, um, and so that can be be uh, against. The more social support you have, the more likely you are to succeed. Time, you'd think they have all the time in the world, but many of these people uh, that may be suffering are uh, taking care of their spouse, they may be taking care of grandchildren, uh, so time can be an issue. There is, there is a lack of expertise in the field. We need to uh, train more elderly substance abuse counselors. And then finally, financial. Um, these are low-income people many times and, and may not have access to the appropriate uh, financial support in order to... Um, to uh, gain benefit from treatment. So the benefit of treatment is clear. There are, there, once we get the patient in, there is just as likely to succeed, and, but yet there are a lot of barriers to treatment because of lack of expertise, problems with, uh, with, with, within the elder, elderly social system. So that pretty much wraps up what I have to, to share with you today. Just a couple conclusions, uh, and again, I think I made these points uh, pretty obvious and pretty often. Um, and again, the, the old saying is, if you t teach for an hour, somebody should come away with three, three points. So here they are. The problem is likely to increase dramatically. Uh, for all the reasons I said, mostly because the people of my generation are coming behind. Uh, recognition can be difficult. There's, there's uh, a lot of problems that I also identified. 
Treatment is effective and should be tailored to the elder adult. And those are my three, three talking points, and, uh, and I'm going to leave you with those. Now, I have here for additional information, much of what I talked about came from this document, TIP uh, 26, Substance Abuse Among Older Adults. Uh, it was written in the late 1990s, uh, very recently updated. Uh, here's the website. It's, it's a document that's got patient information. It's got uh, scientific information. It's, got, it's fully referenced. It's a terrific resource for substance abuse among older adults. Uh, here's the, how the general home that put this together, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, SAMHSA, I guess. And there's their website. And I would encourage you, if you have any issues that you want to discuss about or look into uh, concerning substance abuse, and particularly substance abuse in the elderly, to take a look at these two websites. They're both excellent. I want to thank you for participating. I, I hope that if you have any questions, you'll uh, feel free to contact the uh, Geriatric uh, Lecture Series uh, website. And I'd be happy to, to have a conversation with you about any of these topics that we discussed. Thank you for letting me uh, share this time with you.